here this morning on this special day. It is a special day, isn't it? It's a special day in the calendar of the church. It's a special day in our lives. It's a day that represents the Lord's faithfulness to his mission. This is a day that reminds us that nothing is ever so far dead that it cannot be resurrected in Christ. Amen? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that I'm referencing the palm branches that you received on your way in. But here's the problem. Sometimes I'm so bullheaded that the Lord needs to do something in the natural for me to see it in the spiritual. Right? I'd love to tell you that I'm you know, a man of faith and power for the hour and I walk on clouds and all that. But I'm just a goofball. Okay? I'm just a broken kind of messy kid. And sometimes the Lord needs to make things very real for me in my experience so that I can start to believe it in faith when I don't experience it. So he had to resurrect something in me so that I would see these verses about him in a different light. So for those of you who know our testimony or have been here for more than 10 years or so, you will know what a miracle it is when I say that today is a special day, not just because of that it precedes the Lord's resurrection, but something he resurrected in me today. Cindy and I celebrate our 29th wedding anniversary. Huh? I mean, come on, look at this beautiful bride. Isn't she something? I tell you what, when we hit year 16, things went south. And when we hit year 17, we didn't celebrate. And year 18 and 19 wasn't an anniversary because we weren't married any longer. But here we are, year 29, feeling more powerful and emboldened and messy and beautiful and screwed up and loved. And all of that, still holding on. And for many of us in this room, or I want to say for us, many of you in this room were such a catalyst for praying for us. God is good, and he will resurrect in you the things he has called out and promised. He promised some things in our marriage, and we lost our way. But he held true to his promise. All right? So, yes, even more important than us, though, it's not about us. Even more important than us, it is Palm Sunday. It's that day that represents Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem the week preceding his death and his resurrection. When he was hailed as king by the crowds who were laying down their cloaks in his path, waving their palm branches as he passed, and shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! In fact, if we were in a more liturgical church this morning, I would probably say, Hosanna! And you would repeat back to me, Hosanna in the highest. Can we try that again? Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna Hosanna Amen. Today, why don't you stand with me, palm branches in hand, as we read the word of the Lord out of the book of Luke chapter 19. Let's stand for the word. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill of the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went, and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it, 
And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Shh. And I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Amen. Lord, this morning we ask you, first of all, would you be with our pastor and his wife? I thank you for Dan and Mary, for their influence, for their leadership, for their love, for their constant example that God is not finished with any of us. I thank you that they speak into our lives resurrection power every day, every time we meet with them. Every day he's up here encouraging us from the word. Would you bless them? Give them good face time. And Lord, this morning as you are with us, would you be powerful and would you be soft? Would you be tender in your whisper and loud in your challenge and conviction? And Lord, would you be gentle and put your arms around us and breathe life into places where our hosannas have been silenced. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is such a powerful text this morning. It's packed with so much. I want us to understand the magnitude of what is going on here. If you were to read this story and the surrounding chapters and accounts in Mark's Gospel, it would appear that Jesus goes back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem a couple of times. And we don't know that for sure. It's possible. It was true the Jewish customs at the time required people to come back into Jerusalem annually during any major feast season. There were three or four a year. However, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, seem to write it as if it was a singular journey towards Jerusalem, which is also possible. You see, the Gospels agree on all the accounts of Jesus' ministry, the stories of his teaching, the miracles, and they are aligned in their truth. But each writer had their own style. We do not know if Mark simply recounted the stories in the order that he recalled them or if he was trying to tell things chronologically. But what we do know is this. In Luke's account, and we've been walking through the book of Luke, and maybe you've understood this about him and his writing style. In fact, they refer to Luke's gospel, some scholars, as the traveler's mission gospel or the missional journey account of Jesus' life. Because Luke writes with intention about the Lord's obvious pull, and specifically in these verses, the resolve in the Lord that all roads must eventually lead to this final part of his journey on earth. In fact, if we go back to Luke 9, we find Jesus doing miracles and healing and teaching, and in a most subdued manner, actually. In fact, twice the disciples seem to be caught up in the wonder of it all, and Jesus pulls them aside to tell them, that he's on a journey that would lead to his capture and to his death. But they didn't understand, nor did they even want to hear it. It seems like even as his ministry grew, even as he could not get his disciples to understand what lay before him, Jesus remained resolute. He was resolved in his spirit. If I were to turn back a few chapters to Luke 9, we would read in verse 51... As the time approached 
for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem and sent messengers ahead to get things ready for him. I love this. He set his face towards Jerusalem. Touch your neighbor and say, he set his face. He set his face. I want to ask you this something this morning, church. To where is your face set today? To where is your face set today? And by the way, I want to tell you that I'm only passing along the question that the Lord has asked me several times in the last couple of days, including about 15 minutes ago. To where is your face set, Wayne? I'm going to leave that question there. Let it hang for a second. We'll come back to it. If you need further proof of Jesus' resolve... If we skipped forward to Luke 13, we would read, At that time, as he was entering towards this path and about ready to gather his people and head into Jerusalem, Pharisees came to Jesus, and they and you know the Pharisees. They're not particularly happy with Jesus, but even the Pharisees came to Jesus, and they said, Leave this place. Go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. By the way, this is why they also asked him to silence his disciples and the people that were shouting as he entered into Jerusalem that we read later on in 19 just a minute ago. Herod wants to kill you. And his reply to them was, I, you go tell that fox. You go tell that fox that I will keep on driving out demons, healing today, tomorrow, on the third day, and I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. And now here we are, back to our text in Luke 19, and we find Jesus riding through Bethpage and Bethany from the Mount of Olives and on into Jerusalem. Do you see what is going on here? They are headed to Jerusalem. He is resolved. He is going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jeru. City. Salam. Shalom. Peace. They are headed to the city of peace where there is no longer any peace. The Romans have taken over the city. They've created an upheaval of corruption and power. There is craziness all around. Jerusalem these days. There is political unrest. There is rumor. There is disunity and upheaval. There is chaos in the city of peace. There are crowds of thousands trying to determine if they will buy into this king. There are throngs who already have bought in. And now they are seeking him out. They are trying to get everything from him that they can Get every teaching, every miracle. They are hanging on his every movement and his every word. The Pharisees are being challenged with their own hypocrisy and their loss of influence and authority because of Jesus. And the Roman rulers are fearing their loss of power because the loss of power means a loss of control. The disciples are reveling in the signs and the miracles of their rabbi. 
And yet, even in their inner circles, one of them has already begun to plot against Jesus and help lead him to his death. And in the midst of all of this chaos is where we find Jesus. Trouble with the political leaders on the left. Trouble with the religious leaders on the right. Trouble in his own camp with disciples who do not get yet what he is going to do and one who's even plotting against him. What is going on with Jesus here is so intense. He is at the intersection of anxiety and sorrow and purpose, and he is confronting it all with a choice and a direction that is clear in mission, that is true in vision, and his face is set toward Jerusalem. He will not be deterred. That is what is going on with Jesus. What is going on with the disciples in the midst of all this? There's a euphoria, the promise fulfilled, everything they've been hearing, all the ways they've been sort of interpreting his teaching. The long-awaited Messiah has come, the King of Israel, and not just of Israel, but of the whole earth. And guess what? We get to reign with him because we've been here all along. Jerusalem will be his capital city. He will restore her to peace. And from here he would rule the world in righteousness. What a time this was for them. Their hearts are pounding out of their chests. Their faces were set too. But to where? Maybe you hear, as I do, the mixture of pride and fulfillment as they ask, should we pray down fire on those who are not welcoming you? Or maybe I just hear that because it resembles me. It resembles what I would have been caught up in had I been there with them. You hear them arguing about who would be greatest among them. I mean, you're going to be the king. That must mean that we're the princesses. Which one of us, remember James, which one of us would be sitting on your left and your right, Jesus? Jesus, we are on the way to victory. Nothing can stop us now. Let the fire fall. Let judgment begin. Oh, how Jerusalem will tremble when they see us coming. Their faces were set on their own victory. Their faces were set on the justice they perceived would finally come their way. Their faces were set on things they could see or perceive, but not the things that Jesus saw. And hey, who could blame them? Would any of us been different in their shoes? Have you ever found yourself with your face more set on the victory that you've been fighting for than the victorious one who promised you the victory? Maybe you've been praying for healing or a job or a loved one for a long time, so long so that the light at the end of the tunnel for you is that healing instead of the light being Jesus who promised you. Maybe he gave you a word about your mission in life or your purpose and you're just waiting for it to be fulfilled this morning. So long so that when you wake up in the morning, all you think about is that word. When you go to land at night, all you think about is that word. And when you see other people walk into destinies that look like they were supposed to be your destinies, your thought is on that word. I want to say to you, hold promises in your heart. That's okay. 
God promises you things that you might have hope, but hold them loosely and keep your face set on the promise giver. Keep your face set on Jesus. Have you found your face more set on seeking justice for your Savior and maybe even for yourself as a Christian? I remember talking to a group of students at Bonnie Lake High School who were so disgusted about the rules in school about whether they could pray or not that every day for weeks I heard them talking about the injustice of it all, the injustice of it all, the injustice of it all. I asked them to show up to practice a half an hour early one day. When they came to practice, I just started praying. They've started praying. We're just out there practice praying. We prayed for about 15 minutes. When it was done, I said, how easy was that? You're so focused on what you think a law provides or doesn't provide or what a rule comes down from principle. Nobody can ever stop a Christian from praying in their heart. We don't have to stand out in the middle of the field. We can sit in a bleacher in a locker room in my car in the parking lot. We get focused. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't fight injustice. But I'm saying what's the focus to which is your face set? That's what's going on with his disciples. What's going on with the Pharisees? was simply that Jesus was a threat to their authority. And they envied his popularity. But ironically, they also feared the Roman backlash because of it. This talk of another king was messing up their plans. Their face was set, all right. Their face was set on maintaining their order. Their face was set on sustaining their own influence. Their face was set... I'm watching their own backs. Need I ask it? Have we ever found ourselves with our face set to covering our own backsides? More concerned with what something might cost us rather than what it will gain for Christ. To where is your face set? And speaking of the Roman leaders who might come after the religious, their face is set too. Their face is set towards not losing power. Their face is set towards not losing authority. Ultimately, those questions really come down to this. Their face is set in maintaining their control. Maintaining their control. How often do we make decisions every day that we justify one way or another, but it's really about us having our face set towards control? We buy the lie that if we face towards control, we won't have to fear the unknown of what may control us. But Jesus said of those who would seek to control him, let him come. You tell that fox I'm on my way. Jesus will not silence the truth. To where is your face set this morning? Do you sense the chaos in this environment that Jesus is moving in and walking into? Or, let me ask you a better question, does it sound familiar? Can you relate to the unrest, to corrupt political climate, to movements more for power than for serving, to money? Can we see struggles that are resulting in lies that are based in fear, Can we understand in our society today societal confusion 
about who Jesus really is and how we should respond to his crazy messages. I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound unlike the time we live in today. And amidst all of this, Jesus, so absolutely human and divine, so full of anguish that in the coming hours, in the verses ahead, we will find him praying in the garden with such agony and earnest that he drips sweat like blood and cries out to the Father, if you would just take this bitter cup from me. In the midst of that anguish, in the midst of that, I've always loved that scripture, by the way, of Jesus in the garden. kind of reminds me of Jesus' humanity. Oh, I'm always focused on his divinity. But sometimes I forget the experience he had in his humanity before he was raised. So often when we see divinity, we forget humanity. In fact, I think often when we experience divinity from people around us, from leaders, from pastors, because of the mantle that they carry every now and then, we smell the anointing and we see it and we receive it and it blesses us. And now we're focused on the title because we resonate with their divinity and it spoke to us. And then we put them up on a pedestal. But the pedestal is too high. The air is too thin for humanity. And when they can't breathe, we like to point to their failures and say, oh. We can never look at divinity and forget humanity. But I would also caution you to ever stare at humanity at its worst and forget what God can do in his divinity to bring it to its best. That Jesus, that Jesus in that garden, that Jesus carrying all of this chaos, That Jesus facing what he knows is to come, coming from where he knows he came from, sits outside the city and sets his face to Jerusalem and says of Herod, tell that fox I'm coming and I will reach my goal. To where is your face set this morning, church? So this brings us back to making his entry And again, we read from our passage in Luke 19, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. I've always loved reading about this donkey, this colt, for several reasons. Probably because I can never forget when I was just a teenager first coming to understand who the Lord was. I, didn't, I wasn't raised in the church. And, and an old Lutheran pastor pulled me aside in his office one day, and we were talking about this message. I was trying to get ready to speak to some junior hires about what this meant, and I didn't even know what Palm Sunday was. I mean, I didn't know anything about the church calendar. I didn't know about Easter. I, didn't, I was just new, and I was doing, needing a 15-minute Bible study. So I sat down. He was a visitation pastor at the church that I was at, a former retired pastor. And I sat down with him, and I said, help me understand this. And he said, it's simple, Wayne. And he read from the old version of the Bible that Jesus sought after the ass, the burden, the beast of burden. And he called the ass to himself. And he said to go and tie the ass and bring it to me. And he rode in and he said to me, Wayne, Jesus had to get off his to get his job done. Maybe it's time we got off. So I can't ever read this without thinking back to old Pastor Johnson and him telling me what I would never dare tell you. 
But I love it for other reasons, too. I love reading about the cult. One is simply it's another in a long line of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now, remember what we read back in Luke 13 when Jesus told the Pharisees who were warning him to stay away from the city. He said this, in any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. That was Jesus referencing the prophecies from Isaiah and Zechariah about the king in Jerusalem. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. This is hundreds of years before Jesus' journey. He comes to you riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the warehouses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is so important that you understand that he's tying all this back to the prophecies. And he is, as he always has been, fulfilling the Old Testament law, fulfilling the prophecies that were spoken, and becoming who he is as our king. I am so easily distracted from my own mission. I am the guy that prays to the Lord. Lord, today has been a great day. I have not sinned against you. I have loved my family and my wife. I have been kind to my neighbors. I have been patient at work and respectful to my boss. I have chosen others above myself. But Lord, in a minute I'm going to get out of bed. And it's going to get a lot harder after that. (laughs) And things kind of go downhill for me from there. I am distracted from my mission. But Jesus was deterred. You see, sometimes my heart is set, and sometimes my feet are set. Sometimes my mouth is set, and sometimes my mind is set. Sometimes my hand are set, and almost always my dreams are set. And all those things are good, but in the end they will fail me unless my face is set. My feet can be going one way, and my eyes will wander. My hands can be working on something good, but my vision will be looking at something distracting. My heart can be full of passion until it is hurt and full of pain or even offense. I can get disappointed and then my emotions distract me. But when my face is set with resolve, all those things will follow. Jesus had turmoil on the left and the right, and in his own camp he was carrying anguish none of us will ever know of. And still he was on mission. He was on point. He had not forgotten his calling nor his purpose. He had not forgotten the Old Testament prophecies of Jerusalem. He had not forgotten the Old Testament prophecies about the cult. And well, maybe, just maybe, I have to think to myself, in the midst of all of that, if Jesus didn't forget about the cult, Maybe in the midst of all of this, he's not forgotten about me. Maybe in the midst of all you're going through, Jesus has not forgotten you. I like to look at these verses also from the perspective of the two disciples. In their minds, like we talked about earlier, they're thinking that they're in the middle of restoring the true king to the throne. 
They are planning to go rule and reign with him. They are trying to figure out the order of succession, where they fit in in the new palace regime that will be established. And Jesus says, go and you'll find a donkey, a colt. You can imagine that this is not how they planned their triumphal entry. This is not the job of those who will be princesses in the new king. Have you ever questioned how the task or the place that the Lord has right in front of you fits into the bigger picture that he has given you for your future? Oh, I sit and question that so often. When our idea of how the picture will come to pass delays or deters our obedience in the middle of the task at hand, regardless of how well we think we understand it, it is a sign that our faces are not truly yet We question God's method without knowing what God knows. We are busy saying this task too minuscule. This donkey is not regal enough. We do not see he is busy fulfilling the prophecies from Zechariah. We do not see that we are looking at how things affect us. He is seeing how they affect everybody and everything. He knows that the book of Exodus speaks of an Old Testament rule of consecration and demands in Exodus 13, 13, that when you find the firstborn donkey that has not yet been ridden, that you must redeem it with a lamb or break its neck. <laughs> Exodus 13. So there has to be an exchange to redeem this cult. Someone has to bring a lamb before they can... Take the colt. Do you see that Jesus' disciples did not take a lamb? The owner said, what are you doing? And what did they say? The Lord needs it. Jesus was always the fulfillment of every Old Testament law. Jesus was the lamb. And he came to us in a virgin womb. And he rode back in. On a virgin donkey that had not yet been ridden. And then I see this from the perspective of that colt. How long tied up? How long wondering who's going to ride me? How long looking to his left and his right? He was born, his purpose is to be. A beast of burden. He is to pull. He is to carry. His muscles, his bones, his short and stocky stature, the strength. If you have ever tried to tell a colt to walk through this gate and hold on to the rope, you know what I'm talking about. This animal is born to be a beast of burden. It is its purpose. It's in its DNA. Yet it sits not doing anything remotely according to his purpose. I look at this from the perspective of the cult and I think to myself, how often have we sat around knowing that God gave us a promise for something in our life? He spoke that purpose. He spoke that my son would come to the Lord if I kept praying. He spoke that my daughter would be healed. But we don't See it. He spoke maybe for you and your purpose. And you're turning around and you're watching everybody else asked to be on whatever. The platform, the worship team, this position at work, that position in your family. And you are wondering, why am I still out here 
And has the Lord forgotten about me? You see, the colt is tied up in what appears to be isolation. Have you ever felt isolated before? Have you ever felt isolated? Have you ever walked into a restaurant and had the maitre d' tell you we're full when you're staring at a table that could seat six and you've got a party of four? And you're just sitting there watching, well, we can seat you in a couple hours. Well, that table's right. See, what we don't understand is the table has been reserved. What I want to say to you this, this morning is what you see as your isolation, God sees as your reservation. The cult was not not fulfilling his purpose. The cult was reserved for a purpose. What greater burden to bear from one who is supposed to be a beast of burden than to fulfill the prophecy and carry the king into Jerusalem? So I want to say to you, when you feel tied up, a lamb is coming, and he has redeemed you. And then two things happen. He not only says, find the colt, but he says, loose it, untie it, and bring it to me. We know that we can and need to accept the Lord into our hearts. And that he is a redeemer and he has redeemed us. And oh, we will talk about that next week. But I want to say to you this. You can be redeemed and not be released. I have seen horses, powerful, powerful horses that stand in one place because a rope is simply looped over a fence post. You see, they were tied to the fence post as a colt. And they knew that if they tugged on it, they would go nowhere. So after a while, they just stopped tugging. My daughter, Casey, when she trains horses, she will teach a horse that when I tie you here, in fact, sometimes she will tie them closely so their noses are right up against something. Other times she will tie them more loosely, depending on what training the horse needs. But eventually the horse understands what she desires of it, that there comes a point in that horse's life that all she's got to do is drape the rope right over and walk away. And that horse will stand there until she comes back and looses it. Some of us have been so tied up for so long. Oh, we know we're redeemed. We love the Lord and he loves us and we've accepted him. But we're standing next to a fence that we're not even tied to anymore because of the power of God and the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Lord not only redeemed you, he wants to release you to your purpose so that you can set your face. You don't have to stay tied up to that thing that was never strong enough to hold you in the first place, much less after the Lord has redeemed you. And lastly, I look at this from the perspective of the crowds. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives and the crowd and the disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, they began to sing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They waved their palm branches. Hold on to your palm branch for just a moment. 
they waved their palm branches and they hailed the king as he answered. We have sung, blessed be the name of the Lord, in a thousand different worship songs. We have sung Hosanna. And the very crowd, see, Jesus, Jesus doesn't get too high and Jesus doesn't get too low because his face is set. He is passing by people who are crying and shouting his praises, knowing that in mere days they will be shouting, give us Barabbas. The very same people. And I want to confess to you today that there are times that I have sung on Sunday morning, you are all I want, you are all I need, you are more than enough for me. Until I walk out on Monday or Tuesday and think I need something else and I don't see Jesus in it. What do you mean go untie the colt? That's not what we were doing here, Jesus. Remember you told me that in my life I was going to be this and do this and you promised that if I did this, you would bring this. And now you're saying go untie the colt. And then I act like I need to control everything. And I call this person and I call that person and I put my plans in place. And when I'm doing that, my lips are singing, you are all I want. But my actions are saying, I'm all I need. So he was knowing as he walked through these crowds that they were crying Hosanna, but that they would soon be crying crucify him. Now we're going to save that for next week, but I want to say this. People who have their face set and their spirit resolved aren't wavered by a worship song or the emotions of a moment. Just like Jesus was not wavered when he set his face towards Jerusalem. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as I share with you this one last thing. We have talked about where the disciples have had their face set. We have talked about where the Pharisees had their face set. We have talked about where the political leaders had their face set. And I have said to you that Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem, the city of peace. But I want to amend that a little bit. You see, Jerusalem was just another stop in Jesus' journey. Now, he had to get there to go where he was going next. But you want to know the real truth? Jesus' face was set with resolve and determination and resolute you. He was set toward you. And he always has been and he still is today. So if you find yourself this morning wondering where your face is set, wondering if you've been distracted, wondering if like the disciples it just doesn't look like you thought it would look. Wondering if like the political leaders or the Pharisees, it's just tough to give up control. Wondering if like a donkey, you have been redeemed, but you don't feel loosed. You don't feel released. You don't feel set free. Wondering if you feel isolation and you no longer trust that there's reservation. I want to say to you, Jesus 
He fulfilled the promise that he would ride in on a donkey. He fulfilled the promise that the king would need to be in Jerusalem when that time came. And he fulfilled the promise that his desire was to reconnect you to the Father. It is all about him and his resolve for you. We're going to lead worship one more song. And as we're doing that, I'm just going to ask you, Lord, in my life, where is my face not set? Would you show me? Would you reveal it to me? And then we're going to have a couple people up here. Jesse and Cindy are going to be up here to pray for people if you'd like prayer. And then we'll end together. Lord, would you speak to us now, even as we again stand to bring our praise to you. Would you speak to us, Lord, we want to have our face set towards you the way you have your face set to us. So just teach us. Be gentle, Lord. Be gentle, but teach us. Show us where, what areas. Reveal them to us and then help us get there because we're just, we're just us. We're just us. We need you.